Before we get into today's mailbag edition of Draft Class, let me tell you about what's going on at The Ringer. On the site, you can find a great piece by copy editor Jack Murkowski on how Terry Rozier, a.k.a. Scurry Terry, got to where he is now. Also, The Ringer Podcast Network has a ton of shows to listen to, including The Dave Chang Show, the second episode of which went up yesterday. In the first part of that, Dave and our boss, Bill Simmons, talk about how NBA players would fare as chefs. It's a fun one. Please go check that out. And while you're at it, please go check out our new merch on the ringer.com slash shop. You can pre-order Melothon t-shirts inspired by Tuesday's NBA desktop episode in which we put on a telethon to buy out Carmelo Anthony's $28 million contract. Go purchase that on the ringer.com slash shop. And now it's time for draft class. Welcome to the Ringer NBA Show. I'm Kevin O'Connor, and this is Draft Class. It's the first Friday of the month, which means it's Mailbag Week. I'm super excited to talk NBA Draft with the man on the line. Calling in from Dallas, Texas, it's the professor of small ball, Jonathan Charks. What's up, John? Oh, I got a promotion. I think I'm still an adjunct, though. I'm not (laughs) (laughs) But it's, you know, as much fun as the playoffs were, it's fun to talk draft, too, so I'm excited. Hell yeah, man. It's going to be fun. And back from its one-week hiatus here in Los Angeles, it's popular writer Danny Chow. I've just been in the content mines, just <laughs> cranking out content. But I just want to explain this this little inside <laughs> joke. People have been calling me popular writer Danny Chow for the past like week or two. An Eater LA article on David Chang's new Ringer podcast, The Dave Chang Show, Check it out. was written and it had mentioned me as a reason for our site's kind of expanding food coverage. And I was called a popular writer in that piece. I've been mocked mercilessly in my personal and professional life ever since. I think the funny thing, too, is like we're moving into the food space. I liked how they phrased that. (laughs) (laughs) We're in the draft space here on this podcast. Danny recently visited Portland, wrote a wonderful food diary in the title Chowdown. Highly recommend checking that out on TheRinger.com. And just a heads up, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. And obviously, you're not going to hear this until Friday morning. So if you want to hear about Thursday night's NBA playoff games, listen to group chat. We have Chris Ryan, Justin Verrier, Haley O'Shaughnessy, Paolo Ugetti, and me on the show on Thursday night. That'll be in podcast form, video form on YouTube, so go check that out if you'd like. Also, our intro music is brought to you by the band Oso Oso, and the podcast is produced by Isaac Lee. Isaac, what's going on? I'm good, man. I'm just disappointed that you didn't introduce Paolo as Paolo Escoblog. I thought that we had an agreement that we're just going to refer to him as that from now on instead of his actual name. (laughs) Just the so, greatest uh, ringer nickname. It, it really is. is. It's an all-timer, I think. Shouts to Jason Concepcion. Other than Isaac Isley. Uh, let's not mention that again. Cool. Awesome. Well, <laughs> let's get to it, guys. Jazz defeated the Rockets 116-108 to 108 on Wednesday. Rudy Gobert was absolutely all over the floor. Unbelievable. Dante Exum made Danny Chow very, very happy. My guy! Look, yes, looked like a My lot pick. But we've talked plenty about Rudy Gobert and the Mobamba comparisons. And we actually got a lot of questions from you guys. Thank you so much for submitting them using hashtag RingerNBA on Twitter. And a lot of them were about Donovan Mitchell, who had 17 and 11. We had three really good ones from Michael A. Bird II, Michael Carroll, and a guy named The Wayne. And they all basically asked the same question, quote, who is the Donovan Mitchell of the 2018 NBA draft? But before we can actually answer that, and I'm not sure if there's any actual clear answers, because so much is dependent on situation. I think it's important to understand what makes Donovan Mitchell so successful as a young player. So, so Charks, what is it about Donovan Mitchell, his qualities that do make him so good at the early stage of his career? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is the odds are there's not Donovan Mitchell in this draft. Like the odds of that a guy at 13 is going to be arguably like one of the best players in the league as a rookie is pretty small. I mean, it almost never happens. And, you know, I mean, Mitchell's a great player. We've all watched him in the playoffs. I think what jumps out with watching him, especially going back to his college days, is like the things he does well projected so well to the league. He came in with an NBA body, NBA athleticism. He's really strong, long arms, great shooter. And then he came with the perfect system. If you look at how many rookies you can go to a team that's already a playoff team that just lost their top scorer and has all the pieces to let him be at his best right away and gave him the keys to the team. Like It was pretty much the perfect marriage of team, player, and fit. Right. There aren't that many teams out there that's going to give a rookie a 29.1 usage rate. Sure. That's absolutely astounding. And it was something that happened almost immediately. After basically two weeks, they were just like, okay, Mitchell, you're a guy. For sure, I think the stars kind of aligned for Mitchell in the sense that clearly the Utah Jazz observed him as the player that they wanted. They traded up for him with Trey Lyles had a good year in Denver. I mean, Mitchell was unbelievable, but let's not forget Trey Lyles is still a pretty good prospect. And Denver, had they gotten OG and Obi with the 24th pick, would have been a mutually strong deal for each right. team. It just didn't work out for Denver. But for Utah, clearly they observed him as a guy that could come in and play with Gordon Hayward if he had stayed in Utah or a guy that could play without him. And that's absolutely what happened with Hayward leaving for Boston, where Mitchell was a guy in college where the conversation last year at this time was, well, is he a point guard? Is he a point guard? Does he really have true point guard skills? And it's like, it doesn't matter. Like, that's not what the league is today. And I think Utah understood that. They took him in and said, he's going to be a scorer first for us. But he, he can also develop his playmaking. So they had Ricky Rubio able to develop his skills alongside him. And I think the situation was fantastic. But in addition to that, though, Mitchell himself has a foundation of skills, I think, Danny, that are something to at least look for if you need a guy that's going to explode right away. Right. Really great athlete, so he can at least handle himself on both ends of the floor. He's hardworking, and he's also a pretty good shooter. He's good at a lot of different things. I don't think there's any glaring weaknesses with him, so maybe is it that? There's no red flag with him? Is that what you need to look for? I think with Mitchell's situation, it's also the personnel that he's being surrounded by. You have Ricky Rubio, who's one of the best on-ball defenders at the point guard position, and you have Joe Ingles, who's just a guy who— The great Joe Ingles. Yeah, yes. he can do everything. And he looks like an NBA player, by the way, right. Chris Vernon. And you put those three as the kind of point guard and wing defenders, yes. and those three, they're one of the best defensive trios in the league by defensive rating. All the responsibility isn't on him, despite the usage rating. Charks, do you feel like maybe for finding the next Mitchell, it's about— more so finding the right fit for that player more than anything else where he's in an offense with multiple ball handlers. He doesn't need to do all of it. I mean, that's partly, I think too, like the three-point shot is just so big because the three-point shot translate right away. Like if Mitchell is more like Dennis Smith where he has to attack the rim, the team kind of has to be perfectly built around him to succeed. But a guy like Mitchell, I think he's shooting like seven threes a game. You could almost go anywhere and shoot seven threes a game. You can make them. I think that just makes tradition so much easier having that shot in your bag. I was looking back at the Mitchell scuttering report from our 2017 NBA draft guide last year, and like some of his weaknesses, they're still kind of there in a way. They haven't necessarily gone away. He still takes some wild shots. He's still not the most efficient guy. So that makes me think, like, usually when I'm looking for the quote-unquote next Mitchell, I'm looking for an efficient guy. I'm looking for someone who's not going to take wild shots. But I think the unique thing with him that's maybe not so common is the fact that 
he does play within himself. The development hasn't happened yet in some of those areas, but he knows what to do, as we saw in game two the other night, where when he needed to play playmaker with Ricky Rubio out, he took that on and did take less risky shots. Granted, it wasn't the most efficient night for him, which is a really strong overall night for him. Right, and there was that one pass that he made. He funneled into the defense and then just whipped this like magical pass out to Joe Ingles for a three. I was like, was I, had, I had no idea he had that in him, actually. It's kind of a cliche, but like he has a good feel for the game. Like Mitchell's just a smart basketball player, and that goes a long way too when you're a young guy. Like, he doesn't need to be coached about basic things. He found his role on both sides of the ball. He reads the floor reasonably well. So even though he takes a lot of bad shots at times, he's able to exist in this like very disciplined system. So I'm going to pitch you a guy as I think, not the same player as Donovan Mitchell, but this is my, my guy, Miles Bridges. I think there's something there in terms of Miles. He's a pretty projectable three-point shot. He's a great athlete. He's got reasonable amounts of feel for the game and ball handling ability. So you can stick him somewhere, assume you have him take like six threes a game. I think he'll have pretty good stats right away as a rookie. And I think he'll be able to contribute defensively because of athletic ability. I think Miles Bridges is an interesting pick. And just to give you know, the listeners some context, you have him ranked fifth. He's a, a six foot six forward from Michigan State, sophomore, projected lottery pick right now. But he doesn't need to be a guard. The next Mitchell doesn't need to be a guard. I'm not yeah. sure what you define it as. Is it like the next late lottery star? Is it like the Paul Georges of the world? Or is it the guy who rises up consensus rankings? Because Mitchell, you know, we had him pretty high for most of last year. But a lot of places he rose up the rankings from late right. first or early second even into the lottery. A lot of that was because of his combine numbers. For they sure. were just yeah. outstanding. And his interviews right. as well. I mean, that's yeah. one thing we didn't mention. He he has the it factor right. about him. He's a hard worker, high IQ guy on and off the court. That's, I think, another type of thing that I'd be looking for when it comes to finding the quote-unquote I mean, it wasn't for sure he was, he was going to declare, right? Like, he was kind of waffling back and forth for a while before he put his name in the draft. Right. At, at the beginning of the season, I'm pretty sure he was a second-round kind of bubble guy. And then yeah. right around after the combine, after the interviews, it was very clear that he was going to be a top 14 guy. For sure. Danny, what, what are your thoughts on the Bridges pick for Charks? I like it. I'm really scared about his length and, and yeah. whether or not he's going to be able to defend fours at the next level, mm-hmm. which is where I kind of see him as. I love him as a prospect, and I know this is going to ding me some points on, on the uh, Isaac Lee scale, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely rooting for him. He's an interesting player. I, I like Bridges a lot. I have him ranked 10th. I believe you have him in the, in the same range as me, Danny. Good player. Should be a lottery pick. I'd be very happy if I were a fan of a team that drafted him in that range. I, I think he could certainly exceed expectations, as Chark said. For me, I, I don't really have a quote-unquote Mitchell in this draft. I'm not sure that guy is there. In terms of players that we actually kind of have ranked higher than a lot of other places. Zaire Smith from Texas Tech, maybe that's somebody, if he has a huge combine, great draft workouts, he's somebody that we see rise up the rankings and becomes more of a quote-unquote consensus lottery pick, if that's the definition of the next Mitchell you're looking for. Someone that I don't love, Colin Sexton, Alabama point guard. We've talked about him before, Charks, where... He's good. I think he shares some of the same qualities as Donovan Mitchell with his just really, he has a foundation. He can defend. He can do different things on the offensive end of the floor. He can score or pass. He also has the weird habit of taking some bad shots as well. Is Sexton a guy, Charks, that that you observe as somebody that, granted right now he's a lottery pick, you know, he's ranked lottery by, by most people, that if he slips to the 12, 13 range, that he's somebody that could completely exceed expectations? 
I think eventually, but I think with Sexton, the three-point shot, that's not really the foundation of his game. He's more of like a lead ball handler, drive to the rim, drive and kick guy. And to me, like, is if the that three-pointer Mitchell, really the foundation for Mitchell, though? I mean, he, he broke the NBA record for threes in his rookie season. 34%, though. He's not, you know, great. Just, I mean, he takes a lot of them. Yeah, I, True, I, I think fair. the threat, yeah. the threat of him. The threat of him shooting from that right. distance, in a way, forget the percentage. Don't look at it. It's about his ability to create space off the dribble that makes him the threat that needs to be defended that opens And I think trip. too, like with Utah's system, like there's so many non-shooters around Mitchell, he almost has to take those shots, right? It's not going to be Favors or Rubio taking too many threes. Right. So Mitchell has to take them. I think like a young player who can make threes, the tradition is a lot easier. So to me, I think volume three-point shooting is huge for a young guy if you're going to be good right away. Who's a guy that you thought maybe either last year or in past years that was like that next steal that ended up not being a steal. And like, why were you wrong about that guy? If you guys are thinking about it, I have mine, like I'm right ready to go. KJ McDaniels. Yeah, that's a good question. Let me think about that for a second, Kevin. KJ McDaniels is, is the one for me in the 2014 draft from Clemson. He's a risk. I knew he was a risk, but I had him ranked like 14th or 15th. And I think he ended up going second round, I want to say. Yeah. And he's not in the league anymore. And KJ was a guy where I viewed him as somebody who had a foundation, again, defense, athleticism. I thought, you know, if he improves his three-point shot, if he becomes a good shooter, there he's going to be, a guy who's a great defensive player in the league and also can at least handle himself and just spot up in the corner and space the floor. That didn't happen. It just hasn't right. happened. His shot never got better. Granted, he had different opportunities in Houston, Philadelphia, and Brooklyn. Never happened with three teams that have improved the shots of other players as well. And his defense never really was what it was in college. That's what makes this so hard. It really yeah. does. It's not easy. And even when you get it right, their career paths can go in yeah. completely different ways. Like, I remember being obsessed with Danny Granger's game. I thought he was going to be, like, a perfect two-way player who was mainly going to be a defensive beast. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, like, his fourth year in, in Indiana, he's scoring, like, 28 points a game. I'm just like, I you, never saw this you're, coming. You're 100% right. Like, someone tweeted me the other day, like, good call on Mitchell. You like, like you had him, saw you had him ranked 10th. It's like, yeah, great. Like, I had him 10th. I feel really good about that. But I would have drafted Malik Monk over him. I would have drafted Frank Nilakina over him. I would have drafted Dennis Smith, Josh Jackson, Jonathan Isaac, De'Aaron Fox, and maybe some of those guys end up better players. But right now, it doesn't look like it. And it's the same thing with the Milwaukee Bucks drafting Giannis 15th. Yes, they deserve a ton of credit for taking Giannis. All these steals that occur like in the middle of the draft or in the late first round and the second, the teams deserve credit. But where was that guy on their board? A lot of us got it wrong even when we got it right. And, and Mitchell, Mitchell's somebody where around draft time, there was a lot of noise about the Knicks looking at him in eight, Hornets had interest. I just had the fear um, with Mitchell where his shots were too volatile. There's a lot, lot of poor shot selection where I, that's what held me back. But everything else that we're seeing now is, is why I think Utah traded up for him. He has everything else. Along those same lines, the guy I really liked back in the 2015 draft was uh, Jarrell Martin. He's in Memphis. Oh, yeah. I really loved his game. I thought he had a good feel for a big guy. But the three-point shot never came. And I think that's the thing with a lot of these guys now is like the three-point shot is just so important that you're just really gambling on whether a guy develops that fully. Because he shot three is okay at LSU, but not great. But the jump, instead of becoming better, he got worse at it. And then it's really held his game back on the NBA. Those LSU guys are tough, even with like Ben Simmons. It's like he played no defense there, but now he's one of the better defenders in the league. <laughs> yeah, you know, I saw Jarrell attempt a between-the-legs dunk in a game, and I was like, that's my guy. 
He pulled it off, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think he did pull it off. We may be making the same mistake with Zaire Smith, but we'll see. Uh, Elsewhere in the playoffs, we've seen a lot of other young players having success because of their defense. So we get a handful of questions about that from Andrew Oregai asked, what high floor, low ceiling, late first, early second round guys can make an immediate impact like the Jordan Bells and Shemi Ojale's of the world? And then Andrew Del Toro asked about an article you wrote recently on TheRinger.com about OG Ananobi and Pascal Siakam. And Andrew asked, who stands out of the group of the super long potential 3 and D combo forwards is the best defender versus the LeBrons, KDs, Giannis's of the world, but can also shoot enough to stay on the floor. Who is that, Charles? I'm not sure there's anyone in this draft. I mean, like, that's why it's such a rare skill set, those big forwards you can shoot. Like, the guy I really liked was DeAndre Hunter, but he went back to school at Virginia, and that could have been a guy I think would have been a big mover in this draft if he had stayed in. Right. I think... If there's a guy who kind of fits the physical model, it's Justin Jackson from Maryland. Just from his physique, he's 6'7 with a 7'3 wingspan. He's got that Draymond, you know, esque size to him, huge shoulders, really strong frame. His athletic profile isn't really anything special, though. Like, that's the thing with Ananobi and Pascal Siakam. Ananobi is just a freak as far as coordination. Yeah, it's that quick twitch. And Pascal Siakam is maybe the fastest end to end runner I've seen at the power forward position. He grinds. That, that guy dude. is extremely he fast. He plays so hard. And so Justin Jackson doesn't really have either of that. Yeah. I think he's a smart defender. He uses his strength and length really well. But also he could actually shoot the three pretty well too. So yeah, I, I think he's a mm-hmm. definitely high floor type guy. But I don't really trust him with <laughs> the LeBron assignment <laughs> yet. Andrew asked in the question, like, can also shoot enough to stay in the floor? Right. And and I'm not sure who that guy is exactly. One, one guy who comes to mind that can't shoot at all right now is Jared Vanderbilt, who's only testing the waters. Oh, uh, yeah. Kentucky yeah. prospect, probably one of the better defenders in the draft. Can defend multiple positions, can handle the ball a little bit, just can't shoot. And right. that's the thing. Like, with KJ McDaniels, I, I thought – Improve his jumper. He's going to be able to defend. He's going to be able to stay on the floor. But that didn't happen. With Jared Vanderbilt, it's the same thing. Maybe that never happens. Right. Um, it, it's kind of the Andre Robertson. Danny, comp- what do you think about his teammate, Diallo? I think he's a freak athlete. And I don't know if there's anything else. <laughs> he, he really defended well, right. though, towards yeah. the end of the season. Yeah, yeah. Charks, how about you? I'll put out my guy. He's not quite as big, like, height-wise. as My guy, Raleigh Elkins from Arizona. I think he's got that big frame, pretty athletic, competitive guy. The shot's there sometimes. If he can become a really good shooter, I think he'll stick in the league as a defensive player who can guard multiple positions. With Alkins, do you worry that in college the defense wasn't there all the time? Well, I mean, that's why he's not going to be a very high draft pick. I think he has the tools. I think they are a very poorly coached team. So I don't really, I mean, it was hard to say. The roles, they were all jumbled in that team. My thing is, is like with Shimmy Ojale, watching him in SMU, his defense, for the most part, sometimes his intensity wasn't always there, but for the most part, he was always grinding with C. Ackham constantly going hard. I mean, there's no doubt about him in terms of his effort levels on the floor. Someone like with Raleigh Alkins, we all have him ranked as a first-round pick right now, which isn't true for all outlets, but Alkins is somebody where it's not always there, so I'm maybe a little bit less confident with him, whereas maybe, look, some of these guys have to do with situation. Shemi Ojale might not be this guy if he didn't fall into Boston where he can be enabled within his role and be yeah. very limited and didn't actually get playing time. I don't see that. I, yeah, I don't see any other situation in which Shemi is actually starting in a playoff game. It's that mind-blowing. Is, mind-blowing. Also, you know, there's a hell of a lot of attrition going on in the Celtics roster, so obviously someone had to step up, but 
Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's any other situation in which he's guarding Giannis. And, I mean, and you look at it like, like with Shemi, that's a lot of that is like a coach trusting a young player. I think the perfect example, not to beat this horse, is with like Prunty and Milwaukee in that series. So I loved Shemi's teammate SMU Sterling Brown, but Prunty was like, you know what, I'm gonna play Shabazz Muhammad. I'm gonna trust a veteran over a rookie. Whereas Stevens said, you know what, I'm gonna trust this rookie. He's a better player. Just go with it. And I'm gonna coach the trust the player to give him minutes. A lot of coaches just won't do it. It's tough, though, because in terms of Prunty, there's got to be a reason he was playing Shabazz Muhammad and Jason Terry over Sterling Brown. If Sterling Brown was killing it in practice and locking down guys... And, but he, but he played floor. well in the regular season. That's the thing. And the know, end of the season, he played well. And Prunty just went with his veterans. So I think that might have been what it was, but I've just been kind of defending Joe Prunty and all the Ringer podcasts. And <laughs> that's, that's the hill you're dying on, Kevin. That's, and and I, hill, that's and, a very low, like... I'm going to die on it. (laughs) I'm going to die on this hill, Charks. (laughs) As soon as a coach is hired, I'm dying on the hill, that's for sure. I'm not saying he's a great coach. I'm just saying that there's not a lot of options on the team. Uh, (laughs) Craig Smith asked a similar question about Shemi Ojale and also followed up with him. How about just anyone with a great name in the draft? Who who is the best name, Danny? I think we can all be in agreement that Admiral Schofield is the greatest name in this draft. Yeah. He's also probably get the best look. He's a bodybuilder. Yeah. Is he going to stay in the strat? Is he even in for sure, though? Yeah, he's testing the but waters he has right now. Sure. Yeah, a- Admiral Schofield's a, a wing slash forward. Incredibly muscular. He looks more like a football looks player. Looks like a 30, 25-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Yeah, yeah, and he also shares a name with an actual admiral for the U.S. Navy. Frank Herman Schofield served in the Spanish-American War and World War I. As an admiral. A lot of uh, crossover potential there. <laughs> <laughs> From Jerry, Kakyo, and what do you make of the close grouping of prospects between the 20 to 40 range? Seems like all of the first round bubble guys can go as high as low teens or as late as mid second round, i.e. Aaron Holiday, Kyrie Thomas, Shake Millen, Jalen Brunson. Danny, what are your general thoughts on, on this kind of clump of prospects right after the lottery into the middle of the second round? I mean, they're just going to be a bunch of three and D wings who are all the Mm -hmm. same size. And as we kind of talked about in the earlier question, a lot of these guys aren't going to be big enough to actually take on the three or four assignment. They're kind of relegated to the one and three, depending on how small people are. Like Kyrie Thomas. Like Kyrie Thomas. Yeah. Like Josh Okogie. Shake Milton. Shake Milton. Yeah. Guys like that. It really depends on what you're prioritizing in in this range. I, I don't know if there should be a consensus there. I talked to an executive recently who said to me, he's like, I was asking him about the teams that submit. Basically, for the NBA Draft Combine, the league sends a list of all the players that are eligible for the draft, and teams vote for the players they want to see at the Combine. And I said to him, wouldn't it be an advantage not to vote for the guy that you actually have interest in? Like, if there's a guy that you have ranked 25, but you think everybody else has ranked like 400, wouldn't you not put that guy on your list? And he's like, yeah. But the thing is, is because there's so much knowledge in the league today, everybody knows about every player out there. Like when the Raptors drafted Bruno Cabocla, everybody knew about him. Everybody in the league knew that they were, the Raptors had interest in him, just the public didn't. So, oh man, that that's yeah. a that's an interesting thing. Back when I was at Grantland, we actually had a little tip that Bruno Cabocla was going to be oh. drafted, and I was going to write about him, but it seemed like such a far-fetched tip <laughs> that, because I watched, like, there yeah. were literally three videos of him, and two of them were vertical. Oh, and, wow. And, like, vertical, like, vertical like, cell phone video? Vertical 
training, cell phone, iPhone four, iPhone fifteen 5, yeah. seconds of him like either grabbing a rebound or dunking, and I was just uh, like, yeah. I we can't do this. <laughs> then he gets drafted, and I'm cursing myself. I'm absolutely cursing. See, myself. The funny thing is, there's no more footage now than there was four years ago. Oh, it's still the same clip. <laughs> that is a burn. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah. He led he led the nine oh five to a championship in the G League. <laughs> the executive's point was that. Everybody knows these guys, but that doesn't mean everybody has them ranked the same. What he said to me is like this year, especially that he feels like after 15 or 20, as Jerry said with his question, he's like the next 40, 50, or even 60 guys he thinks could be shuffled any which way at all, which makes rankings this year especially interesting because there are a couple guys that I like that I think should be like early second rounders that I've glanced at a couple other lists and I'm like, this guy's not even in their top 60. And it doesn't make you wonder, do I have it wrong? It makes you wonder, what are the different things that we are prioritizing? Because everybody has different opinions and different traits that they look for. And that's always interesting with a draft. I think in general, like with any draft, I feel like it's kind of like that. There's like, it's what's called like a the pyramidal distribution of talent. So like your tier one, tier two, tier three, might be like five, 10 guys. But when it's like tier four, tier five, then like it should broaden out. The base of players should be I feel like it'd be weird if we all had the same top 50 at that point because there's so many possible players. It just depends on what you value. Well, we also got a lot of questions about Terry Rozier's value in trades for teams that might need a point guard in this year's draft but want to avoid picking one of them, whether it's Trey Young or Colin Sexton. From Adam Bergman, if Danny Ainge doesn't think the Celtics can keep Terry Rozier long-term, what is the highest possible pick he could obtain for him via trade should the Knicks, the Magic, Sixers, or Clippers be interested in him if they don't land a top three pick? Yeah, the funny thing about that is I wrote an article in the first week of the playoffs where I was talking about Scary Terry, as you're going to call him, which is Scary fantastic. Terry. What a nickname, Scary, huh? Scary Terry and DeLon Wright as like, oh, these are guys you can maybe trade a late first round pick for and kind of get a little older point guard. And I was like, maybe the Suns at 16 could trade for Scary Terry. But now it seems like it's almost too low for his playoffs where now we're talking about like a top 10 pick. It's funny how fast these things can change. Right. That was my first thought as well. Like the Suns can actually make a pretty interesting package for Terry. I think they have the number 16 out there. They also have the 31st pick, which is basically the same as having a non-guaranteed first rounder. And those picks are incredibly valuable too. Right. If I'm Boston, maybe I'd be looking for a future pick more than anything else, more so than a pick in this year's draft, unless you're consolidating that for a bigger trade. But they already have so many guys on their team right now. Like, I don't know if they necessarily need another rookie. Maybe you'd be better off trading for a future protected or maybe unprotected pick that could turn into a more valuable asset down the road when you don't necessarily know what your roster is going to look like. But certainly, if I if I'm a team in need of a point guard and I'm either not in love with any of the guys in this year's draft or you're not in a spot where it makes sense to take that player, I'd certainly pursue Rozier. Since we're talking about Rozier, let's let's try a quick exercise with him. And, and right now, I'm going to list you the consensus top 15 point guard rankings from before the 2017-18 season. So this is from October. And these rankings are from ESPN, SI, Reddit, Washington Post, and SB Nation. Here, here was the top 15. It was Steph, Russ, Harden, Paul, Wall, Damian Lillard, Lowry, Irving, Mike Conley, Isaiah Thomas, Kemba Walker, Eric Bledsoe, Goran Dragic, 
Drew Holiday, George Hill. And obviously that's changed the season. IT and Bledsoe and Hill all fell. Guys like Rubio and Rondo probably moved up. Ben Simmons is obviously in the top group. And Mitchell is, if you want to label him a point guard. Next year, Lonzo Ball, De'Aaron Fox, Dennis Smith, Markel Fultz could all make the leap up as well. Um, but Charks, I want to know where Terry Rozier is slotted if you are projecting ahead to next season and ranking the best point guards for the 2018-19 season. You know what's crazy is like, I don't think Jeff Teague is on that list, right? I don't think so. Like, would you really take Jeff Teague or Dennis Schroeder over Terry Rozier next season? Well, I mean, that just tells you how deep the position is. I feel like it's all about your role on the team. I'm not sure I would trust Rozier in like a ball-dominant role like Teague has shown he could do. I think like the the appeal of Rozier right now is that he could be a complimentary point guard. I feel like he could be like a better version of Patrick Beverly. And I like point guards like that. I like point guards who don't need to dominate the ball play defense, spread the floor. So in that's I think like he could have a top 15 value if he's not necessarily a top 15 point guard. Like Jeff Teague, I love Jeff Teague, but he's a good player. I mean, are we sure he's better than Jeff Teague right now, Terry? The only starter in the league that I'm convinced he's better than is Dennis Schroeder. <laughs> but also, I, I'd be terrified of putting Rozier in that role. You know, having him kind of put the entire horrible team that the Hawks had this season on, on his back. Because I'm not yet convinced of his decision making quite yeah. yet, even though his, it ha- his, it's gotten a lot better. It's gotten yeah. a lot better, but his his defense is kind of his calling card right now for me. I think the idea is like that role that Schroeder has is just a bad role to give a small guard unless he's like amazing. So I think with like Terry, I really like him like in Phoenix where he could play with Booker, not dominate the ball and be a complimentary piece. I think that's where he becomes pretty valuable. I think it's when it comes to valuing Rozier in a trade, it's worth considering the trade from two years ago when George Hill went from the Pacers to the Jazz and the Jazz sent the number 12 pick to the Hawks. So that's what Atlanta gave up was Jeff Teague. Maybe Rozier's value is right around that range. Maybe a a tick better, a late lottery pick. I think that's very fair. But again, if you're a team in that range – you're probably going to want to draft a guy like Colin Sexton, who sh- could be available at that point ahead of Rozier because of his youth factor. You're shaking your head, Danny. It looks uh, like you disagree. You prefer, is it the certainty of Rozier that he's shown that he can do it at a high level in the playoffs? There that- is a certain amount of certainty in that. You know, you know you're getting a guy who can create threes off the dribble and who can defend, who has like extremely long arms, high motor, athletic guy. With Colin Sexton, there's a lot that still needs to be determined with with his actual offensive game and how it translates to the NBA. Moving on, next question from Tom McMillan. How high up in the draft can the Clippers move if they trade both of their picks? And just for context, they have the 12th and the 13th pick, Danny. You know what? If I can't get my top two choice and I'm like a top five, I would maybe, I would consider that, yeah. So at four or five, you would? Sure. So let's okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot. You're you GM Danny Chow. You've just been hired by the Orlando Magic. Oh my god! Who, who's the guy you want right there at five? Like who who do you want? And he's not gonna he's not there. He's not available. You're throwing clipboards Aiden. across. Aiton's there. He's not there. He's not there. So you're you're trading five for twelve, thirteen. What else do you want from the Clippers? Uh, I well also I am a terrible GM. So okay. I, I actually want you to fill in the blanks for me here. I would not. I would not do the trade. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would not do the trade. I, 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 I would not. In, in any situation, and I've said this in previous podcasts, I can't see a situation in which they don't end up with Trey Young. The Clippers. 
No, sorry, the magic. The magic. The magic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I think if you look at like past trade downs, like the one that jumps out is the one where Sacramento went from eight to 13 and they got Bogdanovich. I think if you're trading down, you want a little more certainty with that pick. So I think really it isn't so much packaging two lottery picks as having one lottery pick and then a younger veteran guy that you can count on. Otherwise, you're counting on two lottery picks, two rolls of the dice. Unless, I mean, look, every year is different and everybody's rankings are different. Every executive, every GM, every coach has different rankings. Unless you are a team where the guy that everybody else has 14, you have five. And you're like, why not trade down and get an extra shot here, an extra swing? Look at Denver. They they got cute doing that and they lost OG. Like at some point, Maybe yeah. just grab the guy you want or you end up with Tyler Lydon. That, that was an 11-spot drop, though. Like That was a monumental risk. If, let's say, the Kings at seven, and you know? Like, again, another another trade down. Didn't work out last time. <laughs> um, but it kind of it did. They got Bogdanovich. It, it kind of did. Yeah, it kind of did. But again, like another situation like that, if Sacramento is at seven and the Clippers call with 12 and 13, they're, the Clippers call up and they want, I don't know, Trey Young or Miles Bridges, whoever. And if the Kings have Shea Gilgis-Alexander, sixth on their board or something like that. Maybe you trade down and then you can also get a Robert Williams or a Kyrie Thomas or whoever it might be. Maybe you want to take a risk on a Mitchell Robinson type of player in that range. You can do that. And I certainly think that's appealing and I would push for that if I were the Los Angeles Clippers, even though I don't know how many teams would bite. Right. And the Kings in that situation would obviously draft two bigs because they just need more bigs. They need more bigs. Isaac, you're a Clippers fan. I want to know. If you're moving up, who do you want? <sighs> Not Miles Bridges. <laughs> um, yeah, unfortunately, you are correct in assessing that I am indeed a Clippers fan. We had this question last time we did a mailbag, and I think I concluded that no one would want to trade down. I feel like the NFL draft is fresh in our minds, and we saw a lot of like Belichickian moves in the NFL draft where teams are trading down and people are passing on Lamar Jackson and all that. I don't think that's likely in the NBA if I'm the Clippers GM, which I would not envy that job, by the way, I think I would aim for next year's pick. I would try to trade for maybe Atlanta's pick next year. Or let's just say, you know, Chicago would be like, oh, you know what? We got Laurie Markkinen. We're in a big city. We want to be good next year. We want to have like a strong core to move forward with. We want to kind of sell the Chicago process to our fans or whatever. Maybe that's a market that you target. Be like, hey, yo, give us next year's top pick and we'll give you two of our picks and plus one of our young players. I don't know who that would be. At the same time, I am going back on my conclusion that I said last time, which is I don't think anyone would want to trade down. It's a good good way to pivot to our next question from Joe Yu. Who would be the ideal big man the Bulls would have a chance of drafting that could foot alongside Larry Legend, a.k.a. Larry Markin. And the Bulls currently have the sixth best odds in the NBA draft lottery. Charks, is there any big man that you particularly like next to Larry? I mean, this is kind of a cheek. I'd say it for every team just about, but really Jaron Jackson here because he could, Lowry's a high usage big man. Jackson can kind of play the background, protect the rim, guard multiple positions. I think like an offense-defense thing, like a, a new school Tyson Chandler-Dirk Nowitzki thing could happen there with those two. 
Yeah, that's my dream pick for the Bulls. I actually think that's the ideal situation for Jaron Jackson. Well, another great pivot to our next question from Alex Tennyson. Sharks, this is a small ball question for you. With Al Horford's immense success so far in the playoffs as a, as a switchy stretch big man, does that make Jaron Jackson more valuable as an NBA draft prospect in your eyes, even more so than he already was? I don't know. I mean, I had number two before the playoffs, so it's hard for much higher than that. I think I have him as a top three guy, too. So, like, three on my board. Yeah, I, th- yeah. I think we're all pretty high on him. I don't, I don't think he's going to be usurping Aiton's physical abilities. And I think Doncic, especially with EuroLeague Final Four coming up, like, that's a big testing ground for him. I don't, I don't know if he, he leapfrogs into that top two for me. It's certainly interesting. And, and, he, and he fits the Al Horford mold, no doubt about that, with his ability to shoot and space the floor defense, his length. He fits the mold. It's going to be the question of how far does he go? Because Al Horford is an elite defensive player in terms of all the little things, not just blocking shots. He's not a shot blocker. It's positioning. It's communication. It's rotating. It's it's all these little things. Playmaking as well. I think also... Horford can like facilitates. He can shoot threes. He can put the ball on the floor. He can post up. Like there aren't many Al Horfords in any draft. That guy is just a great basketball player. So that kind of like it lets you know that when you look for comparable players, there aren't many. And that's really the one difference with Jaron Jackson. He doesn't have Al Horford's playmaking ability, but then again, Al Horford doesn't have Jaron Jackson's shot blocking ability. There's differences between the players, but they are certainly very, very similar. Moving on to question from Captain Joe. Should Trey Young be considered at number one in today's NBA with such an emphasis on three-point shooting and spacing? Couldn't you make an argument that he could be like Steph Light? All the big men have question marks. Yeah, he ain't defending like Steph Light, though. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Charks? I think the more interesting question is like, is it possible he becomes the best player from this draft? Is that even, a, in y'all's mind, like a possible outcome? Mm, sure. Yeah. I think there's a shot. I don't think it'll happen. But I certainly think it's a possibility. I have him ranked ninth on my board. Uh, I would not say no to that just because of his his sheer shooting ability. I think if he continues improving that, if he keeps getting better as a ball handler, there's a shot. But that that would also require some of the other guys up top to not be as good as a lot of us expect them to be as well, Danny. Brandon Jennings dropped 55 points against the Warriors his rookie year. Anything's possible. (laughs) I I really do believe that. Great answer. (laughs) Great answer for any question, really. From Matthew Thomas. What's the chance we look back on this draft and realize that Shea Gilgis Alexander, Kentucky point guard, was the best point guard? I think if that three-point shot comes around, there's a pretty decent chance. I mean, he's definitely the best defensive point guard of the three. He's the most versatile player by far. He's a really smart player. I mean, I love the way he plays. It's just... Is that three-point shot going to be consistent? It's a little wonky. He didn't shoot many in college, but I think there's definitely a greater zero chance that happens. I think I'm going to lean in on that. Yeah, like I, I, I'm really high on him now, and I, I think he, he might r- rise in my board, even though I think I have him highest among the three of us. Yeah, I, I just love the way he plays. He's, he's becoming a favorite on my board. Final question from Cruz Buchanan. If you could give one lottery pick a boost at one specific skill to make them the unanimous number one pick, who would it be and what would the skill be? What is it, Sharks? I'm going to say like DeAndre Ayton, just like defensive IQ for Ayton. If he had a defensive IQ, I think he'd be the best player in this draft. For me, it's Luka Doncic. I already think he should be the consensus number one. But to make him the consensus number one, give him elite athleticism. I want him jumping out of the court. Ceiling's the roof for him. That's what I want for Luka Doncic. Yeah, give give Doncic Aiden's 45-inch vertical and give him give Oof. him basically all of Rondé Hollis Jefferson's functional athleticism. And he's like a top 10 draft 
prospect of the ever. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, here's a take. If he was an elite athlete, he'd be like LeBron, basically, right? Like if he was like a plus plus athlete, yeah, at his yeah. size sure, and his skill certainly. level, yeah. If he had LeBron's athleticism, oh my god, he'd be LeBron. <laughs> In our first draft class podcast, you did compare him to Larry Bird, didn't you, Sharks? I said it was possible. Poss- <laughs> possible. Yeah, well, in, yeah. the, in the next five years, biomechanics could take off. We never know what could happen. He already has improved as an athlete after his summer at P3 last year, and maybe he'll be back. I hope so. Love that well, place. We got a lot of questions from you guys, but we are sadly out of time. We're going to probably save some of these for topics to talk about over the next couple of weeks. But for the time being, we're ready for grades. Isaac. Hello. First of all, all of you guys, I just want to congratulate you on having no big pronunciation errors this week. Good job by you guys. Nice. There were uh, a few small ones like Kevin O'Connor saying Dragic as Dragic, uh, which I've corrected him numerous times Many on. Times. But you uh, refuse to change. Speaking of refuse to change, Kevin O'Connor, you are dying on the Joe Prunty Hill. That is a super interesting take that I've heard you repeat on numerous <laughs> NBA shows. I don't know how to feel about it, so I'm going to give you like a middle of the pack grade, which is a B minus. I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that. My only point with Joe Pronti is that you can't just replace the coach. The roster also needs to get better. Sure. I, nuance goes right over my head. I'm a blog boy. Um, yeah, we're not, we're not here for nuance. <laughs> yeah. Tarks, you're riding hard on my Michigan State guys as always. You know, I'm an easy target for homerism. I have to give you an A. Nice. That was the whole plan the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And Danny Chow, welcome back to the podcast. You were lukewarm on Miles Bridges and you acknowledged that in the moment. That doesn't give you any points. But a great Grantland anecdote on Bruno Caboclo. He's the guy that they said, uh, whoever was on the broadcast said, two years away from two years away, right? Fran Fischilla, my my hero. Fran Fischilla. I was going to give you a B, but now that I know it's Fran Fischilla, I'm going to give you an F for Fran Fischilla. <laughs> <laughs> Solid. I'm into it. Nothing personal. It's just alliteration. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that was fun, guys. Jonathan, thank you so much for calling in from Dallas, dude. As always, good times. Danny, you deserve an A, but thank you for joining. Absolutely. Isaac, I am going to go watch uh, NBA Desktop just to hear you singing again. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. From here in beautiful Los Angeles, thank you so much for listening to The Ringer NBA Show and for submitting all of your questions. Please rate The Ringer NBA Show five stars on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. For extra credit, please check out The Ringer's 2018 NBA Draft Guide at nbadraft.theringer.com. We're going to be updating that pretty soon with 30 more profiles and team needs pages. Special shout out to my friend and the biggest NBA fan I know, Elon. Elon Musk, I know you're listening. I just want to let you know that I won't ask you questions about Tesla's earnings. I just want to talk basketball so please join the show next week thank you so much for listening again have fun peace out peace out